Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera podcast, a show about Bitcoin. So Bitcoin seems to be consolidating in this range in the mid 50,000s to high 50,000s. Where are we? Are we in the middle of the cycle? Are we at the top? What does it really look like? William Clemente III joins me and he's been doing a lot of work in terms of talking about on-chain analytics and trying to understand what's going on in the market. So in this one, we get into on-chain analytics. Is this time different? Are we entering a super cycle or not? As well as analyzing what the different cohorts are doing uh, and a range of different metrics, as well as discussing what a market top would actually look like. But first, a message from the sponsors of the show. Greetings, Stefan Levera fans. This is Dread here, and I have some big news to share. Swan Bitcoin's new private client services division is open for business. So last August, MicroStrategy CEO Michael Saylor kicked off the trend of companies buying Bitcoin for their balance sheets. A flood of high-profile investors and companies have joined him. Names like Paul Tudor Jones, BlackRock, Square, and Tesla. Swan Private exists to meet the massive international demand from thousands of companies, family offices, and high net worth investors from all around the globe. If you're thinking of buying between 100,000 and 100 million US dollars worth of Bitcoin over the next year, visit swanbitcoin.com private. That's swanbitcoin.com private. Fill out the onboarding form or email the CEO personally. Corey at swanbitcoin.com. That's C-O-R-Y at swanbitcoin.com. Respect fans and one love. Lend at HODL HODL is a non-custodial Bitcoin-backed lending platform so you can lend and borrow globally and anonymously. If you have stable coins, you can lend them out and earn some very attractive returns. HODL HODL's lending uh, platform it is growing in volume and a lot more people are using it now so you might have a good chance of finding a counterparty on the other hand if you have bitcoins and you you need some liquidity without selling well this is one of the ways you can collateralize your bitcoins so you can put that up into a two of three multi-signature escrow where hodl hodl holds one and the counterparty obviously holds the other key so this is a peer-to-peer lending and borrowing platform on this platform you set your own terms and put up offers depending on how long you want to borrow or lend and the interest rate go to lend.hodlhodl.com are you interested to get involved with bitcoin mining compass is an online marketplace making it easier for everyone to mine bitcoin this is the anti-cloud mining option compass helps you buy your own asic and you can place it at hosting at facilities around the world that compass have done some of that due diligence for you so for years we've heard that mining is only profitable if you're investing tons of money but now Anyone can tap into the economies of scale and access reasonably priced hardware and cheap industrial power rates. For many of us, it would simply not be competitive to mine on our residential power rates. So if you're unsure about how to get started, Compass offers hardware and hosting bundles. You don't have to have advanced technical knowledge. You can quickly get started mining Bitcoin with hardware you own. Go to compassmining.io and start mining Bitcoin today. Will, welcome to the show. Hey, Stefan. Thanks for having me on, man. I'm I'm a big fan of your show for sure. Thank you. I've been watching some of your work on Twitter and uh, what you've been saying in terms of Bitcoin on-chain analytics. And I thought, ah, it's time to get this guy on the show. He's got a lot of interesting things to say. Uh, But uh, I know you're a young fella. So tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into Bitcoin. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I just turned 19 uh, a little over a month ago uh, at the end of March. But uh, I got into finance at the beginning of last year when we had the big liquidity crisis. Um, 
you know, everything, everything looked really cheap and I, I wanted to, you know, make a quick buck <laughs> and I had really no idea what I was doing though. So I decided, okay, I'm going to listen to some different podcasts and stuff like that to try to just, you know, grok investing a little bit. And what really stuck with me was the, uh, you know, the Warren Buffett free cash flow kind of investing, right? You know, I read Intelligent Investor and a little bit of security analysis. I listened to Preston Pish's pod, of course, and got into all the, you know, very basics of value investing, right? And, what you know, obviously, when you start to look into it, you, you realize, oh, my gosh, value investing is getting absolutely obliterated by momentum and, and growth strategies, especially over the, you know, since 2008. And so I was like, why is that happening? And what you really come to, um, all roads kind of lead to the fact that we have no sound money. Um, and the, the money that you're using to kind of make economic calculation with um, on these businesses is not sound. It's like you're trying to build a house with a ruler that's changing in size constantly. And so that kind of led me down the rabbit hole of, okay, so what, what could be the solution to this? Because right now, uh, you know, equities aren't really based off of, you know, their earnings and things like that. Um, they are a little bit, but, but not to the extent that they should be. And it's basically just coming down to where the liquidity is sloshing around to and the momentum of where the liquidity is moving to. So um, th- that kind of led me down to questioning, you know, what what's uh, the definition of money? What makes sound money important? And then that obviously led me to Bitcoin eventually. And at first, you know, I, I really understood the uh, the number go up technology and got into, <laughs> I think like all of us, anybody who says they, they didn't get into Bitcoin for the number go up technology is kidding themselves and they're trying to act like they're on some high horse. But at the end of the day, we're all in here because the price is going up. Uh, but then you start to understand, you know, uh, the, the humanitarian and the, the societal impacts of, of what sound money will really bring for society, right? Like... Uh, the the incentive structure that's built around fiat, not only just the inequality, right, which is a whole other route we can like go down, but you know the fact that equ- the equities are being pumped up by the QE, and if you don't own equities, then the you know you, you're uh, getting wrecked by this by this money printing, and and the wealth inequality gap is just getting wider and wider. Uh, but also just the incentive structure that's set up for society. You know, when you have like a super inflationary currency. Uh, you're incentivizing spend, spend, spend all the time. And, uh, you know, you have sprouting out of that, like materialism and all these kinds of things, which in my opinion are very toxic for society. And just in general, as Bitcoiners would like to put it, where they talk about time preferences, um, I think inflationary money uh, incentivizes a very high time preference throughout society. And so that's something that also uh, made me very passionate about Bitcoin because it's going to incentivize this better framework for for what uh, our, our society is built on, right? Um, when you have money that you realize is going to appreciate over the next five, 10 years, you're going to do other things in your life so that you can appreciate that spending power, right? Like just you know, a personal example for me, I've started eating better. Uh, so the uh, Bitcoin, you know, it incentivizes a whole different framework for society where you are implementing a low time preference where, you know, people are looking at, okay, how can I build a better future for myself over the next five, 10 years? Uh, one personal example for me is now, obviously, I understand where Bitcoin's going. I've been taking care of myself, eating better, things like that, uh, trying to take care of my mind, read a little bit, stuff like that. Um, and I think when you kind of apply that that thinking and that, that framework to 
broader society that changes uh, the way that everybody acts in the world as a whole. And I think that's, that's super good for humanity. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to put it. And it really reminds me as well, like when we're reading various economic articles and things, they can spell out how time preference really changes the way we act as people. And when we are operating in that very high time preference mindset, which in some ways fiat money drives that onto all of us, we're acting more like animals. We're actually thinking more and more just about baser instincts. It's just about survival. You become more like just an animal who's like, you know, if you go to safari and the safari guy is like teaching you, oh, look, these guys are all about survival. For them, it's literally how do you get to the next, you know, how do you get your next meal? How do you, you know, survive? How do you not get eaten? Um, as opposed to being able to think and plan for the long term, which is actually a very human thing. And that's something that is enabled by when we are able to uh, apply capital accumulation and all of these kinds of ideas. So you got into Bitcoin, you, you know, obviously, like many people, you came here for number go up technology, and then you started to go down the rabbit hole a little bit more. So as you got into the Bitcoin world, what was it that led you towards the whole on-chain analytics thing as opposed to something else? Like maybe you could have been a, you know, a privacy guy, or maybe you would have been, you know, a TA guy, or what made you into on-chain analytics? Yeah, great question. So, you know, I, I think obviously, you know, I was just consuming like a whole bunch of podcasts and um, yours, Preston's, Peter McCormick's, um, Pomp's, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to miss a few, but I'm just naming some off the top of my head. But eventually, um, I, I forget, I think I think it was actually on Peter McCormick's podcast, he interviewed Willie Wu. And I remember he did like this 2020 uh, yearly recap of like the year on chain and the way he was talking about bitcoin was just really fascinating to me the fact that you can you know the way i like to think about on chain is if you could track you know in in the world we have now every time someone hands each other a five dollar bill or you know transacts uh, cash anywhere at any time and you could track all of that on an open ledger and then you can sort that data out and then make assumptions about uh, the behavior of different uh, groups of people based on how much money they have or how long they've been holding their money, like all these things. It's, it's really fascinating. And the way that he can really, um, the way he described the fact that you're able to, you know, describe where where we are in the cycle, um, the, the behavior of different entities and cohorts of, of uh, Bitcoin holders is just really really interesting to me and so i was like i need to i need to take a step further into this this stuff is this stuff is really interesting stuff and um so i just i went down the rabbit hole with that i just uh went on youtube and obviously i typed in willy woo and just listened to like everything that he's listened uh, he's been on I, a lot of like the tone vase uh episodes that he's done on youtube those are kind of hidden gems in my opinion uh, for the people that don't like tone just stick just skip over when tone's talking and skip to when willie's talking but <laughs> <laughs> those are those are ones that are pretty unique because uh it he he screen shares like when he's doing the pods with peter or i think he's done one with like jimmy song you you don't get to see what he's looking at but in the episodes with tone he screen shares the whole time so you can actually see all these charts that he's he's looking at and really kind of pick his brain as to what he thinks really makes the market tick and uh so i started watching all those um another guy who's really smart with the on-chain stuff is uh david puell as somebody i look up to as well as uh marad everybody knows marad he's kind of gone missing since uh last march but i'm sure he's out there somewhere 
and uh, he he's a really bright mind in the space. He he knows a lot about uh, the, the different data aspects of Bitcoin. Um, also, uh, you know, of course, Raphael. I think he offers a really interesting perspective because there's people like Willie where they're interpreting the data, but Raphael has this really interesting perspective where he's actually on the back end typing in the data and he's actually putting all these metrics together that uh, we're all reading. So he has this really interesting perspective where, okay, he'll say, oh, maybe this is an outlier because of this. And he he understands all these little movements in the data that maybe you or I wouldn't be able to explain. So he's somebody that I often ask a lot of questions to because um, he has a very deep understanding of the on-chain stuff. And then as well, Checkmate. Uh, Checkmate does the weekly reports for Glassnode. He's somebody I kind of like to keep in touch with because he's somebody I've learned a lot from. So yeah, there's a lot of really bright minds in the on-chain space. Um, just looking at all the work that they've done, trying to soak up everything from them, pick their minds. You know, um, I like to think when uh, this is actually something I learned from Preston. You know, when when you are trying to understand something, you you kind of find the smartest minds in that in that uh, discipline, right? And then not only do you try to follow what they're doing, but you try to pick apart their brains and say, like, what is driving their thinking? What kind of things uh, taught them what they know? And and then you kind of get this very balanced perspective from different angles of people in that discipline. So that's what I've been trying to do with on-chain stuff. Uh, I, you know, I think it, it's really so early with all these metrics we have. Uh, the very first one was when Willie came out with NVT. And NVT is this very basic metric. Uh, Willie likes to describe it as the PE ratio of Bitcoin. And it's basically valuing Bitcoin based off of uh, the transactional volume on chain. It's literally a ratio of uh, the network value or the market market cap to the transactional volume on chain. And so whenever we get to the end of the bull uh, the bull market, you have this huge run up in market cap, but the underlying investor activity on chain isn't going up. Therefore, it's overvalued compared to its uh, its organic transactional volume that, that's going on, on on the blockchain. So that was the very first metric that was created by Willie. And then in 2018, you had like the hollow waves. Murad and uh, David put together the MVRV, which is a really good indicator. That indicator is uh, the market value to realized value. It, it's, so the way you can think of this is like you're obviously taking the market cap, but then you're taking a ratio of that to realized cap, which is the price of all Bitcoins based off of when they last moved. So, you know, let's say Roger Vayer bought 100,000 Bitcoins at a dollar or something crazy like that, right? Let's say he never sold them, which I'm sure he's moved those coins. Yeah, yeah. But let's say, he, <laughs> let's say he, he never sold them, you know, for in market cap, that would be um, Bitcoin's just dipped a little bit. I think it's down to 54K now. So that'd be $5.4 billion of market cap that's added. But let's say the coins never moved since when he bought them at a dollar, then 100,000 is only added to realize cap. So you're taking a ratio of the market cap to that. And so you get um, these overheated zones when when the market cap is rising way above investor uh, underlying investor activity where, where coins are actually moving and when investors are actually buying the coins. And then also you get these very distinct buy zones in the bear markets when because if the market cap falls under the realized cap, you have capitulation by definition. Um, so those are those tend to be very uh, very uh, promising buy zones where you could take, you know, uh, statistically, especially if you have under other indicators that are screaming that it's a that it's a, a bottom, right? Yeah, um, you can take a statistically uh, a higher uh, risky 
uh, a more risky buy, excuse me. So, you know, maybe you don't go 100x long on BitMEX, but if all these indicators are screaming bottom um, and that the MVRV is one of those that I would include in that basket to look at, then, you know, you can take a 2, 3x leverage buy or something like that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so l- let me break some of that down a bit. I mean, because we've we've thrown a lot out there. So just for some of the yeah. listeners who might be a little bit newer, uh, some quick refresher material. Oh, also, anyone who is interested to listen to Raphael Schulze-Craft, I've got two episodes with him and some various episodes. But I think just a bit of background for listeners. If you're new to Bitcoin, think of it like every time you spend some Bitcoin, that's obviously visible on chain. And then the other thing that we can see is that we we know, we can see when that that quote unquote coin or UTXO unspent transaction output, it last moved. And so by looking at those metrics and combined with other things, we can sort of get a sense of where we are and get a sense of where the market is. Uh, And I think there's a few different, I guess, underlying objectives. And I'm curious what you think as well, but I guess high level, you could think of it like Sometimes you want to see what are the whales doing and what are the OGs doing uh, compared to what are the new people doing? Because what the new people doing might be a little bit more erratic. They might be more, I guess, speculative or kind of in and out and more gambler type. Whereas typically the veterans are a bit more predictable in how they do this stuff. Um, And then I guess at the the end of it, you boil this all down. What we're trying to do is get a feel for where we are in the cycle. And I think the way I would, I guess, summarize it is not that you can call an exact top or an exact bottom, but you can just have a sense of relative risk. You can have a sense of, okay, we're getting sort of, there's more of a risk that we're toppy or there's more of a risk here that, or an opportunity here that we're kind of towards the bottom and therefore now is a better time. Time to be buying now personally i'm not a trader but i just i do find this stuff interesting as well just to have a sense of where we are in the market so how do you how do you think about that do you agree disagree have a slightly opinion slightly different opinion yeah i think i think you're pretty spot on there you know like you said i'm, I'm not a trader either but i just think it's interesting to know where we are in the cycles right just kind of understand where we are and like you said you know the the on-chain stuff isn't going to give you an absolute top anybody that says that they can time the top is either drinking their own kool-aid or they're they're kidding you right (laughs) and they're just flat out lying to you uh but like you said we can get these rough estimations of okay things are starting to get a little frothy here um it's starting to look a little toppy or you can say okay we're all these metrics are lining up saying we're near this capitulation bottom of of the cycle and it might be a good time to you know uh take some heavier buy here and like you said you know you can track all the behavior of, of the long-term holders which at the end of the day really is the smart money in the space because these are the people that have been through multiple cycles when we're talking about the people that have had their coins and wallets for 10 plus years which by the way we can track all that right because you can like you said we can track the age of the coin so you can see coins you know that have been held in a wallet for under 24 hours uh, a day to a week a week to a month etc cetera, etc cetera. and and you can see all the way out to these older holders that have held for three to five years, five to seven years, seven to 10 years, 10 plus years, right? And when you start to see these older holders um, and you follow their behavior, that tends to be the smarter money in the space. And at the bottom of the bear cycles, you see them accumulate very heavily and you see uh, the new money kind of step out that speculatively hopped in during the end of, you know, end of the previous cycle, like at the very top of the bull cycle, they FOMO'd in and 
on the way down, uh, they, they freak out and, and they sell and capitulate. And then at the bottom, so, so to illustrate this, if anybody um, has a Glassnode subscription, you can look at this, um, there's something called HODL Waves, which I know Glassnode isn't the only provider that has this, but HODL Waves basically shows the portion of supply that's held by different ages of the different cohorts. And so when we get to the top of the bull market, like Stefan was kind of getting at here, the the smarter money at the end of the cycles, uh, they start to sell off into strength. And so you start to see a larger portion of supply becoming held by these uh, these younger aged coins. And, and AKA, you know, the for lack of a better word, the dumber money, the, the speculators, the people that are FOMOing in. And then at the bottom of the bear market, you see a larger portion of supply is held by these longer term holders, these, you know, five to seven year uh, age addresses, these 10 plus year holders. They're, add, they're adding to their positions heavily during the bottom of the bears because they understand uh, the cyclical nature of Bitcoin. So, yeah, I think following following that smart money and the behavior of those wallets is uh, one of the things that that's very important when you're trying to time where we are in the in the cycle and gauge that. Yeah. Now, Will, one other point to add here, one episode I did with Preston, actually, where we called it the final cycle, or there's also the conversation around super cycles, right? So whatever term you want to use, we could think of it like, is this time different, right? So historically, we have been through bear markets where there were 80% drawdowns from the top to the bottom, right? So 2013, uh, kind of 2014, 15 was the bear market for that. And then 2018, we went, you know, from that top of 20,000 down to call it three or 4,000. So now the conversation coming now is that maybe this cycle will be different, that there won't be a big 80% or 70% drawdown. This time, we might see only little pullbacks along the way. So in your mind, how are you thinking about that when you try to marry up that fundamental analysis question or just the, the shift in the narrative, the shift in the way the normal person is thinking versus some of the on-chain analytics? How do you mesh that together? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, you know that there's been a lot of talk about the whole super cycle thing. Everybody wants to know super cycle. Is, is this it? Um, I think it's something that's definitely on the table and you just have to monitor it over a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. You know, the way I look at it is the some of the behavior on chain uh, definitely is different than previous cycles. But at the same time, I think, and I'll get back to it, but I think it, at the end of the cycle, it'll be interesting to see, will we still see um, human greed kick in, which is just natural market behavior. And we start to see this huge blow off top, which in my opinion will, will happen just because that's human behavior. But what I, what I mentioned about some of the metrics that are different, I think the biggest one that everybody knows of is the, uh, the exchange depletion. I've, I've been posting a fair amount about that, and I know many others have as well. It's, it's. Uh, I think, can be accredited to a couple other things, uh, a couple different things. Excuse me. I think the first one is definitely just custody solutions, like people, it, like the the players that are stepping in now, the high net worths and institutions that we can see are, are coming in on chain. They're not going to mess around with just holding their coins on Coinbase Exchange. They're going to withdraw to some, I don't know, fidelity custody or something like that. Um, I had the privilege of speaking with somebody from Skybridge Capital and they have a huge Bitcoin fund and they're like, yeah, we're not going to play around with taking custody of our coins. We get them and send them right to Fidelity, right? I'm sure they're not the only ones thinking that way. So there's definitely some of that there. And then also something not as prominent, uh, but something that's very interesting is the locking up of coins and derivatives contracts. 
um, for you know to do something like you know the the cash and carry trade, right? You have to have spot Bitcoin to uh, to capture this the the spreads between the the futures premium and the and the spot, which we can get to back to that because I know that's like a whole another conversation. But also, Grayscale is playing uh, not as not of lately because they haven't had any recent purchases. But I think towards you know the end of last year, then they they definitely played a part in that decline. And then also BlockFi. BlockFi has over like twenty billion dollars assets under management. I might be wrong. I might be understating that a little bit, but they definitely are a fair playing a fair portion in there. So I think it's a combination of those things. But more importantly, I think this this liquid supply or, or illiquid supply metric that Glassnode has is, a, is an even more uh, accurate way to really understand what's going on. Because yes, when you look at the coins moving off exchanges, it's, it's illustrating this decrease in supply, obviously supply and demand, less supply, even if demand stays the same, price should theoretically go up. But obviously, uh, you know, just because people withdraw coins from exchanges doesn't mean they can't send them right back on within a 30 minute period or whatever and just dump them. So I think when you look at the illiquid supply metric, it's giving you a lot more uh, accurate picture of this narrative that people are buying coins and not selling them. So Glassnode's illiquid supply metric is basically uh, they they take different addresses and they group them into entities. So they forensically say, okay, this group of addresses looks like one person. This group of addresses looks like another person. And then they take the behavior of, of that entity. So they say, okay, this entity has moved, you know, they've taken in this amount of coins, but they've only moved out this amount of coins. And based off of that percentage, they get moved into different cohorts. So there's highly liquid, which are like, you know, daily in and out traders, uh, liquid and then illiquid, which are people that statistically have a very, very minimal likelihood of, of selling. And I think they use a 155-day threshold for that metric. Um, I might be wrong, but it's either – I think that's the threshold. It might be for the long-term holders so net position metric, but it doesn't matter. Anyway, there's a certain threshold that Glassnode uses, and they say after this threshold is crossed, statistically, the likelihood of these coins being moved back out of the wallet goes down drastically. And the the amount of supply that's moving to these illiquid uh, – this illiquid cohort has been just – continuing just without any uh, sign of letting up since March of last year, which is very interesting because, of course, that the whole narrative of Bitcoin being an inflation hedge really kind of spewed up then. And so you're, you're just seeing these coins moving to these addresses that have no history of selling at like an unprecedented rate, especially when you compare it to previous bull markets. Obviously, in, in the bear markets, you see these spikes because we talked about, you know, smart money's accumulating because they know the bull market's coming in two years later or whatever. But in a bull market, seeing this liquidity the depletion is just really kind of unprecedented. And I think that's that paints the picture a lot better than just the uh, balances of, from exchanges. And, and that's, I think, to me, the big thing that's that's changing in the on-chain setup that, that's Gonna gonna be interesting to see how it plays out throughout the year. Do those do those entities all of a sudden decide that they're gonna change up their behavior towards the end of the year, or does that continue? But as of right now, it's looking like that's that's not showing any sign of slowing down. I think I think this market, the the whole derivatives market, if you if you want to, we can get into this, but I think that's something that's really uh, important and something that hasn't been around in previous cycles. Back to the show in a moment. 
Coinkite.com are the creators of my favorite Bitcoin hardware wallet, the Cold Card, and the new version 4.1.0 brought in a new feature called Seed XOR. So most of us understand now that metal seed backups are paramount as paper could burn. But then the challenge is, how do we store clear text secrets as anyone with physical access could access that and gain control of the funds? Well, now with Seed XOR, you can actually split your seed into multiple seed phrases. So you can think of it like a two of two or a three of three where you actually need all of these pieces to be able to combine them. Now the interesting part is that each of them works on their own as their own fully working wallet so that might be useful in a duress scenario. So go and check them out. Go to coinkite.com and use the code Levera for a discount. Unchained Capital are building Bitcoin native financial services on a foundation of multi-signature. So as this bull market is going on, number is going up, have you thought about your security? If you're sitting on a single signature hardware wallet or you've left your coins on the exchange, go and look into Unchained's multi-signature. This is a two of three setup. So you hold two different hardware wallets and Unchained is that third key in the scenario that you need them to help you. It's really easy to set up if you go to unchained.com, but they've also got this white glove treatment, the concierge service, where they will ship you the hardware wallets, they'll do calls with you and deposit $1,000 of Bitcoin in your vault. Use code Levera for a discount there. Go to unchained.com to get set up with Unchained Capital Multi-Signature. And as we've just been talking about securing your coins, don't forget to have them backed up on a metal backup, such as the Cypher Wheel produced by CypherSafe.io. This is a stainless steel product. It comes in a wheel shape and you'll receive some tiles and you then slide in four tiles for each word and that is enough to back up for your BIP39 typical uh, word seed, the 12 or 24 word seed. So make sure you or your loved ones can access those coins. Don't just trust on in that piece of paper that you get given with the hardware wallet. Make sure you're using something that's fireproof and waterproof and rustproof and all of these things. So go to cyphersafe.io and use the code Levera for a discount. Back to the show. Yeah, right. So there are certain changes about the market as well. So I guess one other point just on the whole illiquid supply, I guess it is also worthwhile remembering that this is one of those things where I have to catch myself as well every now and again, but it's it's not that, okay, yes, there are new coins being mined into existence, but as we speak today, it's about 18.7 million out of the 21 million total that are already issued or mined into existence. And so really what we're talking about is the relative changes between that. So then the other point to layer on is that, yes, the amount of coins held on exchanges is going down. Yes, there are more people hodling, but it's also fair to say that as we start getting to really high highs, there'll be some old holders from years ago who were like, oh man, even if I just took a little bit off, I could buy a house or a car for my family or whatever. Um, Or maybe they want to buy their Citadel or whatever it is, right? Um, At some point on the margin, people will start taking some off the table. I mean, we can tell them, hey, you should be hodling all the way till hyper-Bitcoinization, but that doesn't matter to them because they're like, hey, I might not live forever. <laughs> and, uh, you know, well, I'm not going to live forever. And I want to be able to do this thing with my coins now. And so I would hypothesize then that really what we're going to see is that, yes, we're seeing the coin, the coins on exchanges go down. But towards the end of this cycle, we're going to see the reverse of that trend. And they'll see more people who are going back the other way because now they want to uh, buy something with that Bitcoin. Um, so what do you think about that dynamic? Yeah, it's it's a really good point. You know, I think the whole the whole narrative about the coins moving off exchanges at some point, people are going to start freaking out because we're pushing this narrative so hard when coins start to come back on exchanges. 
losses, which will happen at the end of the cycle because it's just human nature. You know, if you bought Bitcoin 10 years ago, you were 30 years old and you're 40 now and your Bitcoin's worth whatever crazy amount you can retire and never have to work again in your life or buy, you know, your dream house or whatever. Yeah, you're going to take some chips off the table. Who cares? But I think what's interesting, though, is when we're just talking about where we are in the cycle right now, we're seeing uh, very limited selling from those holders. So like to me, to me, that's illustrating that they're expecting a lot more upside. And one way to look at this is uh, dormancy, which is this metric. It, it takes there's a in, in on chain metrics, there's this metric called uh, coin days destroyed and, and dormancy is, is based off of this. And I'll explain how uh, coin days destroyed. You can think of this as if a coin is in a wallet for 10 days, that's 10 coin days. Then the coin is moved out of the wallet. Well, then 10 coin days are destroyed. And so dormancy adjusts this for volume to give you um, a little bit more uh, signal on on the behavior of, of the older coins that are being sold. But you saw a peak in dormancy at the end of January, which I think is very interesting timing because you start to, well, since then you've seen a steady downtrend in that. But I think the timing of that is interesting because that's right around when Tesla announced their buy. And whether that's just, you know, correlation without causation or was that was that actually the catalyst for some of them to step back and say, oh, hold on, maybe we're actually going to get that institutional adoption this cycle. Uh, I think it's a very interesting question. But since, since the end of January, we did uh, see a huge drawdown in selling from those older holders. And I think that's just a testament to they know this cycle is still there. Very far from overheated, and still probably have a still probably has a while to go. You saw the same thing with miners; like miners ramped up selling around twenty seven thousand to thirty two thousand, which is to be expected. Like when you see miners and these long term holders selling after we break all time highs, they've been waiting for this for a long time. They're they're selling a little bit, and then they're waiting for the next crazy run back up. And I think that's just a another way to understand that we're in this just consolidation and, and they're waiting for higher prices to start unloading again. But I I absolutely agree with you that at the end of the cycle, we're going to see some of those older cohorts begin to unload some of their bags as well, because I know I would. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so I guess that's also the question then as well, because I think there are some people out there saying, yeah, it's going to be a super cycle. Don't expect that it's going to be a huge drawdown, whereas others in the camp, and I think uh, probably you and I are similar there, like I think we are going to see a big drawdown. Not Again, not that we want to see this, just that, that that is the likely outcome in my view. So the way I'm thinking about it is that really it's about how big is the, for want of a better word, DCA army, right? How many people are out there stacking sats every day or every week and eventually at some point we're going to reach a point where we overheat and the market overextends beyond the level of what those DCA army people can suck up. And so I think that's probably the question that if you built up theoretically, if the DCA army built up so much, then maybe we would enter the super cycle. But I, I just I guess what I'm saying is I think it's unlikely the DCA army grows that large uh, that uh, that we enter a super cycle this time around. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And if we're going to see a super cycle, it's going to have to be something where, you know, we consolidate. We, I mean, we shoot up and then we consolidate for two months like we have now at between 40K, 60K. We consolidate for a while and then we move back up and then we consolidate for a while. But 
that's just not how human behavior acts um, with these market cycles. The higher we go, the more uh, the, the the faster the uh, the price uh, movement accelerates. Right, the higher we get, the uh, you know, it, like in the last cycle, it, it took us like I don't, I wasn't around back then, but just looking at the price charts, you know, it took like a week and a half for price to double or something crazy like that. And so it the, the price appreciation gets faster and faster and faster throughout the cycle until you know human greed obviously kicks in. People stop selling because people are like, oh my god. We're going to the moon, you know, this thing's going all the way. And then that's where things like, you know, the, the NUPL and NUPL, net unrealized uh, profit and loss, it, it starts to get into that greed euphoria zone because people stop selling because they think that this thing's going to go up forever. That, that's very dangerous because then people are just bidding, bidding, bidding the price up and there's no underlying uh, investment activity that's going on up there. And also like one thing that I'm, I'm really using to distinguish the this consolidation that we're in from any kind of bearish activity is on-chain volume. So when when we get to the the top of, of cycles, we see very minimal uh, distribution of volume. There's not a lot of uh, investor activity that's going on up there. It's just literally FOMO, people coming in and just bidding the price up. But where we are now, we're seeing this huge slice of little sliver of volume. It's actually the largest sliver since 6K to 11K last year. And at the, the 57,500 level is actually the, the largest single bar of volume since 11,000. So, you know, every every cycle, uh, I, once again, like obviously I wasn't around back then, but looking at the data, it looks like we build up this huge base of capital, like two to three times the previous all-time high in, in this uh, the on-chain volume. And that's what it looks like we're doing now. Um, and so I would kind of suspect this to be the bear market floor in, in the next, uh, when we have the next drawdown. That's the way I kind of see where we are now. But we're building up this huge base of capital where, you know, we might be consolidating for a few a few more weeks. I mean, who knows? But when we break out of this thing, there's so much uh, volume support here and, and so many, or I'm sorry, so much capital that has inflowed to these levels. Um, I, I don't think we're going to come back. I think it's gonna be like 10k you know we were sitting under 10k everybody thought bitcoin was stuck there forever it was basically a stable coin at 9500 <laughs> <laughs> and then all of a sudden he busted out of 10k and never came back and i see the this consolidation very similarly also um similar to the to the volume uh realize cap and we had touched on that earlier realize cap has been going up dramatically over the last month or two which is very bullish because you're seeing a lot of capital once again, flowing in at these levels, new investors coming in to take positions at these levels. So, I yeah, in my opinion, we're just we're just in this huge consolidation zone. Yeah, and so I guess the other way to think about it also is that those players who are long term thinking will not want to sell anything below that level because that's what they bought in at. It's like maybe the analogy would be like you come to a poker table and um, you bought in with this amount, so you sort of feel like you don't want to leave with anything less than that because now you're losing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting you say that because uh, there's a metric that actually measures that. It's called SOPR, S-O-P-R. And it's timed every bottom of, of the bull market corrections that we've had so far this cycle. Because like you said, people have a very low tendency to, especially um, smart, you know, retail investors, a lot of times panic sell, but big money that's stepping in when you have, you know, taking like a million plus dollar position, those are, it's sufficient to say those are uh, intelligent investors, smart money that's coming in if you have that much capital to deploy. So these people aren't going to sell at a loss. Um, and 
And so it's interesting when you see the market goes into a, a state of loss um, on ag- like on aggregate. If if every if the market on average is selling at a loss, that's marked. Uh, that's what the sopermetric measures. And when that's happened, that's marked every bottom. So yeah, like you said, the more capital that flows in at these levels. It's building up an, a new floor for, for people that are, this is their new baseline, right? I mean, you may have bought in at whatever, 5, 10K, right? But the people that are buying in now, this is their baseline. And so you, you're you're building this higher and higher floor for price to kind of build off. Yeah, so and we're seeing a lot of that at these levels. Also, stable coins coming in. Uh, I think over over a third of stable coins have been printed above 50k. I think we're actually approaching 40% of all stable coins have been printed above 50k. I think like seven billion dollars of stable coins have been printed in the last 10 days. So yeah, there's a lot. I mean, obviously some of that is going to all coins. There's a, as much as we don't want to believe that, I mean, it's the truth, but a substantial portion of that is going to Bitcoin. So yeah, there's a lot of capital coming in at these levels. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm also curious your view on, okay, so I guess sticking with the poker analogy, sometimes there are times where you make the right call, but you still lose, right? So as an example, whatever, maybe you went all in with aces and the other guy still, he sucked out on you, right? I don't know. Or, or maybe the other way around. Maybe it's more like, are there instances where, you know, you might be looking at certain on-chain metrics and get led the wrong way because you might think it's a certain way, but actually you're wrong. Um, so I guess that's not like the aces example, but just for instance, for that example, how do you think about that, or how do how do um, you know on-chain analytics people think about that and trying to make sure you know I'm not getting the wrong signal here? Yeah, that, that's a really good point, and I think you know the way you kind of combat that is by looking at multiple metrics that are kind of describing the same thing. If you're if you're just going off of one metric, and I'm glad you brought this up, if you know if you're going off of one metric, right, you can't base your whole assumption because at the end of the day, what we're basically doing is forensics, right? And that's what I think is kind of fun about it is you're looking at different clues, and and we're just making an educated guess and saying, okay, these different metrics are saying the same thing, so it's likely that this specific outcome, right? Um, and so it's important not to just go off of one thing, and you want to look for something called confluence, which is basically you know a, a similar story that's being told by by multiple metrics that describe the, something similar, and and yeah, that that's very important because if you're just going off of one thing, a lot of times there's nuance to these metrics and. Um, there, there might be something that you missed of, oh, this is why this is acting this way, or there might be something fundamental that you're missing. I don't know, like one, one example would be like in 2019 when, and this isn't really on chain, but when, when price was pumping and everyone was very confused because like we haven't been in a normal bear market, but then if you understood fundamentally the, the plus token Ponzi, you know, that, that's a piece of information you need to understand to know why price action is acting that way. So you always need to know the, the fundamental drivers of, of what is, what's, uh, driving the data points, you, you know, if if you if you're just looking at the data without knowing, uh, you know, what fundamentally is causing the behavior that way. Uh, for example, like if you're looking at whales popping up, and you know the the liquid supply metric that I was talking about. If you didn't understand there was this macro backdrop where everyone's looking for an inflation hedge, and you didn't know that corporations were coming in you would be very confused about uh, the behavior of whales and, and the liquidity depletion, right? So it, it's important to understand the fundamentals as well and then 
look for that confluence across the multiple indicators to understand the, the best possible picture, I think. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So it's, it's essentially marrying up the fundamental analysis and looking at really what's going on qualitatively as well, and then also trying to look for multiple indicators that are pointing in the same direction. And so I guess it's similar like being a trader or whether you're a poker player, the idea is that you're not necessarily going to get it right every single time, but the idea is that you're getting it right more often than not or trying to tip the odds in your favor so that you know, okay, now's a favorable time to be buying uh, or whatever, whatever sort of action you're taking in that. And over time, the market evolves. And so there might be new metrics involved. So as you were saying, even stable, the growth in stable coins, or maybe uh, more and more people are playing in the derivative space. How do we think about that? And how does that change any of our uh, approach around on-chain analytics? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I said over over the time, over the long term, the market's going to evolve. It's going to be harder to track on-chain movements when you start to have things like uh, Lightning come online, right? I'm sure the the brilliant people over at Glassnode will figure out how to how to uh, you know compensate for that. But it's going to be uh, it's going to be different. You're going to have to adjust and evolve to that. You brought up stable coins, like that's something that wasn't around last cycle, and it's very important to look at the flow of stable coins because you understand where you know capital is coming in to the market. The derivatives market as well is very interesting because that wasn't around last cycle. It is around this cycle. So a lot of these crazy swings, like we just had this crazy nasty wick down to like 53K or something like that. And I think what that is, is it's just liquidations, right? Um, The market gets over leveraged in one way. And then in, in my opinion, a lot of times what this is, is a whale coming in and saying, okay, there's a lot of leverage. Everybody's got their their liquidation price where if if the price goes down to this level, they have to sell and then they get liquidated, right? And so I think these a lot of these crazy price swings that you see on these shorter term pri- time frames are liquidations in both directions and and to some extent whales kind of playing into that knowing where those stop losses are and hunting them to try to to move price to uh to kind of go their favor in the trade, but Anyway, yeah, I think it it's very important to understand the derivatives because that plays a huge part in like in in the March crash March crash of last year. A lot of the selling came from de- derivatives and not spot. So if you're if you're a long term investor, if you if you really like if you could see that, then you'd say, okay, well, it, you know, if, if the fundamental long term holders aren't selling much here, and it's just derivatives. Well, not nothing has changed in the investment thesis. The smart money isn't selling off here. There's nothing to be concerned about long term, right? But I think the derivatives the derivatives plays a huge part in in a lot of these nasty wicks and price rises. It goes both ways. We see these disgusting drawdowns, like we saw like at the end of last month, where we went down like fifteen percent in an hour and we saw billions and billions of dollars of liquidations and that's what that was it was just a cascade of liquidations but it also goes the flip uh, the flip side to the upside where you know if there's a bunch of shorts all of a sudden you know the price goes above that threshold for the shorts their their stops get hit they have to buy in they get liquidated and then it, it's a chain reaction of short liquidations on the on the upside as well so it's kind of a double-edged sword but that makes for these really crazy uh sudden moves in bitcoin that that we've been seeing lately especially on these like shorter time frames 
Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and especially the short squeeze stuff as well, because it really makes you wonder who is actually going short. And now, okay, maybe there are some people who are, maybe they are just for, for whatever, some other position they're doing that maybe they're not that net short, but they are. And then essentially people get caught with their pants down during these moments. And then, but who, who, who is, who are these people? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, I guess, I guess some of it is just, you know, speculative traders, they're just doing like their TA or something and they think that the price pattern they drew is saying price is going to go down. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of the short interest is actually coming from hedge funds uh, that are trying to do this this uh, cash and carry trade, which is very interesting, where you're you're buying the uh, spot Bitcoin and then you're shorting the future. And and so I, I don't know. I'm assuming that their, their liquidation price would be a lot uh a lot lower than some of the speculative traders, especially the ones that are like going leveraged long. But you know, if if we have a, a big enough cascade of liquidations, they're getting thrown in there too, getting liquidated. But yeah, we're definitely seeing you see this huge increase in uh, the the futures interest from from these hedge funds, which is which is very interesting. And then specifically, like when you break that down even further, the futures interest from the hedge funds is mostly short, like like not even close, like way dramatically short. So in my opinion that's that's showing that some of them are trying to capture this this risk-free spread between the spot and the futures yep yep so this is like the whole uh the uh so plan b has mentioned there's a lot of people talking about the you know the contango trade uh and essentially it, it really works for people who are fiat denominated right so if you are bitcoin denominated you don't want to risk generally speaking you don't want to risk losing your bitcoins but maybe if you if you've already got you know your stack of bitcoins and you've got a small amount that you're doing on a fiat you're you're kind of treating that like a fiat denominated thing or there are people who aren't hardcore orange pilled bitcoiners yet and they are still fiat denominated so they're trying to capture that um and because they're you know i think it's it's we're living in this world where returns are really not that great in real terms because um because as we were mentioning earlier Price earnings ratios on stocks are just getting bid up to crazy levels. Bonds are negative return or negative real return. So I guess there will be demand coming, but it's just people haven't all figured out how to execute that yet, or maybe they're not comfortable with the risks associated. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think the whole cash and carry thing is very bullish for Bitcoin for this reason. If you're going to capture the spread, you have to buy underlying spot. You have to to capture the spread. You have to go long spot and short the futures. So the wider that these spreads get, which is going to increase as the volatility increases, Mm -hmm. and the volatility of Bitcoin increases the the further out into the cycle we go. So I suspect that as the cycle goes on, these spreads will probably get fatter and fatter. And the so to break it down, the contango is basically when when the futures are trading at a premium to the spot, and the futures um, every so often, you know, whatever every month or that they're going out, um, they're trading at a higher and higher price. And so you can capture. Let's say the futures are trading at sixty thousand, and the spot Bitcoin is fifty five thousand. For someone that's operating, and like you said, in a fiat denomination, this isn't for some hardcore Bitcoiners, but you know, this might be for a fixed income investment fund or something like that. And so they can capture that essentially risk free uh, $5,000 difference by shorting the futures, going long spot, and then holding those positions out until when the futures contract expires. And so, and so this is going to be very interesting to see play out towards the end of the cycle 
if and I mean, who knows if this will happen? My my theory is that it will. Will the futures, uh, especially because they're being driven by uh, leverage. So like the the exchanges with higher leverage, like Binance, FTX, uh, the the le- the the difference between the spot and the futures on those exchanges, the futures premium is way higher versus something like CME, and uh, that's because of the leverage that those that those exchanges offer. So when we get to the end of this cycle, there's gonna be more leverage positions being taken. Will these will these spreads blow out to crazy stuff like 50, 60 percent plus? I mean, it might go higher than that. Who knows? But um, the theory is if, if that happens, then there's going to be a whole lot of interest to come in and capture that spread. And the way that that, that would uh, be a bullish for Bitcoin is because people are going to have to buy more and more underlying spot Bitcoin, like market market buy Bitcoin to capture the spread. So that's just locking up more and more coins, um, which I think could be something where if we get to the end of the cycle, will that be something that causes like this huge next leg up? I don't know. But that's... That's something that I think is, is very interesting to keep an eye on. I don't know how it's going to play out, but it's it's something fascinating because we've never seen the behavior of um, these contango yields in, in a full blown bull market. Yep. So I guess in terms of the overall view where we are in the cycle, from your perspective and from it seems most of the on-chain analytics uh, people, it, we're still in the middle of the cycle. So if you had to kind of summarize, why do you think we're still in the middle of this cycle? Why is that? Yeah, great question. So, you know, I think the biggest thing is that the age of the coins that are being sold here are really young coins. And we're continually seeing, like we had mentioned in the beginning, you know, cohorts of cohorts of addresses that really have no history of selling are, are continuing to scoop up these coins. Also, we're seeing a realized cap go up, which is, is resetting a lot of indicators like the MVRV. It, it's showing that a lot of new capital is coming in at these levels. Um, we also touched on the on-chain volume, which is the, basically saying the same thing. Um, and it really comes down to, yeah, there's, there's a lot of capital that are coming in, that is coming in at these levels. We're building up this huge base, uh, in my opinion, for for price to, to kind of grow off of where there's a lot of, you know, new market participants stepping in and this floor that, that we're building up. We had talked about, you know, the, the whole poker thing, people, you know, when the price levels that they step in at is their bottom that, that they're basing their gains off of. And the more capital that flows in at these levels, the more that floor is, is raising up to where we are now. So I think we're just in this huge midway consolidation. Yeah, really interesting. And as you were saying earlier, it comes down to marrying up a few things, right? The fundamental analysis, there's a lot of people coming into Bitcoin. There's more and more businesses building services that allow other people to buy Bitcoin or connect up, for example, NYDIG connecting up with banks to allow them to buy Bitcoin. So that's like a very strong fundamental thesis, this whole narrative of long-term story or a value, save your value, this is the thing to do it with, that narrative is coming. And then the confluence of all the various the on-chain analytic factors that you were mentioning earlier, like MVRV, the cohorts, who's holding, who's accumulating, as opposed to who are the people selling. Not that many, but <laughs> there are some. And I guess also, if you do you have any thoughts on where you think uh, the top of the cycle would be? Do you have any guesses? Yeah, so I got to be careful with what I throw out here. 
I, I would say I would say 300k is is a good solid round number. Um, I'm also kind of piggybacking off of Willie and Plan B a little bit here, but also a lot of the metrics, uh, the, the broader cycle metrics. If you just kind of look at the ratio where we are now compared to the previous cycles, and you just kind of project out into the the future, you know what that would look like in terms of a top this cycle. I think across like three or four different metrics, that's looking right around that 300k spot. So I think that that's my number as well. Yeah, interesting stuff. And so that might sound really crazy to people who are new to Bitcoin, uh, because that is literally, we're talking five or six X from where we are today. (laughs) But uh, Bitcoin can really move quickly. And so we will see a lot of people come in and it will be like that whole, it'll feel like that whole eternal September. There'll be every man and his dog will be hitting, you know, Bitcoiners up being like, hey man, how do I get this thing? How do I, what do I do with it? And then, you know, you're gonna have to try to teach them. uh, But uh, that's just gonna be the way it is. Um, um, also, last question. It's gonna get crazy, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm, an, I'm anticipating the next few months will really start to get crazy. And I guess for the last question, do you have any thoughts on how on-chain analytics will evolve in the future, or perhaps are there directions that you would like like it to go? Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question. Something I think about a lot. You know, when we move into this kind of hyper Bitcoinization world where Bitcoin becomes the the dominant form of money and, and is the global you know medium of exchange and all these things that Bitcoiners yeah. unit of account in the future. I think that it'll be very useful to kind of track the behavior of the economy, right? Because everything's on this open ledger. You can track the behavior of all different economy or economic participants, what they're doing with their money. And and not not in like a forensic way, right? There's like the whole chain analysis people where they're literally doing forensics on like who you are and you know where your money is going. Like I'm not talking about stuff like that because I also am a big proponent of the whole freedom aspect of Bitcoin and privacy and all these things. But I'm talking more so you can track the behavior of of the economy as a whole and um, you know just to kind of gauge where we are in things like economic cycles which i think that's super exciting and having an understanding of the behavior of money in combination with um, other macroeconomic factors i think will give you an even more accurate picture of what's going on in terms of things like business cycles and stuff like that than ever yeah so uh yeah we'll just have to see what what happens hey um so we'll uh really enjoyed chatting with you before we let you go where can listeners find you online yeah so um i'm on twitter at uh, w clementi and then i i i because i'm the third so i like to throw that on on there uh, and then as well I'm, i do a uh, weekly newsletter that i put out um on monday it's on on my sub stack which is in my bio on my twitter and then on friday it actually goes out on uh, anthony pompliano sub stack and then on saturday we do a weekly you know very short like 15 20 minute recap of kind of the developments on chain yeah i'm mostly on twitter i'm super active on twitter um, especially now that i'm home from school i'm pretty much glued to my computer all day so feel yeah you know feel free to shoot me a message or whatever but i'm constantly posting different metrics and stuff so that's probably the best way to get at me excellent thank you will for joining me thanks so much stefan i had a really good time so i hope you found that one useful as i've mentioned before i'm not a trader myself but i still find these discussions interesting just to understand where we are in the cycle where we're at uh, and of course follow will uh As for me, you can find this show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 274. And usually I'll get a transcript up in a couple of days afterwards also. Make sure you subscribe and share the show with your family and friends so that they are getting access to good quality Bitcoin information. Thanks for listening and I will see you in the Citadels. Mm -hmm.